So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me now to the book of Acts, chapter 7. Here in chapter 7, I remind you that a a Jewish man named Stephen, early member of the the Church of Jesus Christ, has been preaching the gospel uh, in the city of Jerusalem. His preaching has upset other Jewish men. Uh, A synagogue there called the Synagogue of the Freedmen. They've laid hold of Stephen, brought him before uh, the council of the Sanhedrin, and he has been charged uh, with blasphemy, which is a serious charge. Stephen has been given the opportunity to, to speak for himself, and in doing so, uh, he defends not only himself, but defends the claims of Christ and the gospel um, by showing that those claims are consistent uh, with Moses, that is, with the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, and at the end of uh, Stephen's apologetic, uh, he has turned to uh, Sanhedrin and, and also to the, to the gathered people in that scene uh, and accused them of being guilty of the same uh, spiritual stupidity and opposition uh, to God, which their fathers uh, showed seemingly in every age, and that they now uh, were rejecting uh, their Messiah and the Lord Jesus Christ who had Come. That's where we left off uh, last week. So we pick up this week in Acts chapter 7, uh, verse 54. We'll be reading to the end of the chapter today. Uh, we found that. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Let us pray. And now, Lord God, we are gathered to hear. Being gathered to hear is not enough to hear. We need, Lord God, for you and your grace to give unto us uh, ears to hear, to to open uh, the ears of the uncircumcised, that they might, by the grace of God, uh, be able to to know the truth as the truth and to receive the truth as the truth, and so be affected uh, by it unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, the Son. And so, Lord God, it is for this grace of the Holy Spirit that we ask for now, uh, that that these words should not fall upon deaf ears today. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So our sermon text is, again, Acts chapter 7, verses 54 through 60. Hear now the, the inspired word of our God. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, And they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, The Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Uh, 
So as we are uh, reading through the book of Acts together this year, uh, we, are, we are gaining, uh, growing in our understanding of the, the mission of the church, the better to uh, engage in that mission in our own time and place. And, uh, and this is happening uh, week by week. So we, uh, we began in the book of Acts with, with what we recognize as the primary, central mission of the church, which is the evangelization of the world. Go and and preach the gospel uh, to all the peoples of the earth for their salvation. That is um, the principal mission of the church. And so that's what we we saw first back in Acts chapter 2, as Pentecost, the Apostle Peter preached uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this will continue throughout the book of Acts and throughout the history of the church and even unto the end of the world. Jesus said this gospel of the kingdom must be preached to all the world and to all the, the nations of the world and then the end will come. So we want to be real clear about that. Uh, the principal mission of the church is the evangelization of the world. But as we read on through the book of Acts, what we also see is that as the church engages in this, its mission, And as, by the blessing of God, it enjoys success in its mission. So other needs arise. And so other aspects of Christian ministry become necessary to to meet those needs. So, for example, where the gospel is preached and enjoys success, there will be converts to Christianity. And so we're going to need churches, local churches, where these new converts can be discipled. They can be taught the ways of Christ and encouraged in the ways of Christ and partake in uh, Christian worship and Christian fellowship and be equipped for service, etc. Uh, so there's going to need to be uh, the planning of churches and then uh, there's going to need to be the oversight of churches, which is uh, the ministry of the elders. Uh, beyond that, then, as uh, our preachers continue to, to preach the gospel, go into new parts of the world, uh, as the movement grows, there's going to be increasing opposition, um, there's going to be threats of persecution. Uh, which our, uh, our preachers have to deal with. And, and so then it's going to be necessary, we saw, for the, the churches to come together and to engage in intercessory prayer before God, to, to pray uh, for our, our preachers, for that boldness that would enable them to, to continue uh, to face this opposition and, and preach on uh, and not be deterred in their mission. Uh, beyond that, we also see that as the numbers of the church grow, Um, Included in those numbers will be the poor, Um, those who are already poor and those who are in various ways uh, made more poor. Their poverty increased uh, by their uh, Christian uh, confession. Uh, And so it will be necessary for the church to to see the poor and to realize, well, we need to take care of them. Uh, And so there will be uh, a ministry of charitable giving and then we're going to need an administration um, to, uh, to oversee those gifts and the distribution of them. And that is the office of deacon. And then beyond that still, we, uh, we saw further that, uh, again, as the church uh, continues to, um, to grow in its influence, so skeptics uh, will arise and publicly challenge the, uh, the, the beliefs of the church, uh, claiming that they are uh, can't be true because they're inconsistent with what we already know. And so we will need uh, Christian apologists uh, to stand forward and to, to speak to these skeptics and to provide uh, a defense of the reasonableness of the claims of the Christian faith. So you see how 
uh, our understanding of the mission short church is is building right as we're as, as various aspects of the ministry are being added to that which is the primary ministry so that continues uh, then here in chapter 7 at the conclusion of chapter 7 uh, with yet a uh, another need uh, and a ministry uh, which is appointed by God to meet that need uh, and that is the, the ministry the service of martyrdom martyrdom uh, the need here is there are times in which uh, the church and its mission needs, the world needs from the church, a particularly clear and compelling witness to Jesus Christ. Uh, and that net need is met through the ministry of the martyrs, the witness of the martyrs. That's their special role here in the mission of the church. What is martyrdom? Uh, to be clear, martyrdom is, uh, is when a, a Christian is slain, dies for his or her witness to Christ. That's what a martyr is. So it's not just Christians who die, uh, all Christians die. Uh, but it is a Christian particularly whose life is cut short, uh, who's slain uh, because of their witness to, to Christ. The martyr has been uh, openly, boldly, Confessing Christ, perhaps preaching Christ, um, walking in the ways of, of Christ, um, and in doing so, the world's hatred for Christ has turned upon this individual and it costs him or her um, their life. Uh, and so that is the, the witness of the martyr. And we see here in, in Acts chapter 7, the account of Stephen, uh, that martyrdom has been a, a part of the church's um, experience, part of the, uh, the experience of the mission church from, from the very beginning. Stephen is considered oftentimes the, the first Christian martyr, um, certainly not the last. We'll see others um, in the age of the apostles in, in the book of Acts. Beyond that, we know that the Christians in the first centuries were severely persecuted, men like Polycarp, um, burned at the stake and cast onto the lions as we move on into the uh, medieval era, the Reformation, so there were martyrs like John Wycliffe uh, and John Huss. As we enter into the, the age of the Reformation among the Protestants, many, many martyrs that, uh, that we could uh, name, both ministers and just members of the, the church, like the Scottish families among the Covenanters who were hunted down um, in the killing times in, in that nation, and, and going on into the modern era, there continue to be many, many Christians who have, who have given their lives, has cost their lives to profess, uh, to preach Jesus Christ under the totalitarian uh, regimes of the modern era. Lots of Christians have died for their faith, and it continues to this very, um, very day. Certainly in Muslim countries, um, there are Christians who are martyred um, in, in this time. These are our brothers and sisters in Christ who are, who are giving their lives um, for their profession to Christ. And, and other places as well, I read a story uh, a couple of years ago about a, a man from South Korea, a young man, young Christian man. Uh, he, he walked north to the border between South and North Korea. He bowed his head, he said his prayers um, to, to the God of Christianity, and he entered in uh, with the intention of preaching the gospel. Never heard from him again. No surprise. He's almost certainly dead. That's a martyr. Uh, that man understood himself to be, to be called uh, to bear that kind of witness to Christ in his own time and a place. And, and so the Bible teaches us about martyrdom. 
um, so that we're not surprised by it. Uh, so that rather than not understanding it, we can uh, understand it. So it's, it's teaching us about martyrdom here. There's many other places where it teaches us about martyrdom. Uh, it teaches us that this is to be expected, and, and not only expected, but to be, to be seen as, as part of what God has ordained. Part of God's purpose for the church. Part of the plan, let's say. Um, that, uh, that, it, that among the ranks of the Christian people throughout the, the age of the church, um, some would die for their profession uh, to Christ. Um, we hear this in any number of, of places. Jesus taught his disciples in Matthew 10. He said, Now brother will deliver up brother to death. And a father is child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my, name, for my name's sake. So Jesus was, was teaching the, the apostles and was teaching the church. Some of you will die for your profession of faith. There will be martyrs. The apostle Paul, uh, later, after the, the death and the resurrection of Christ, uh, invoked the word Psalm, of Psalm 44 in speaking uh, of uh, the Christians in the age of the gospel. Uh, and said unto the God, For your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. So Paul's speaking of, of Christians there. And then the book of Revelation, uh, Christ, one of the things that Christ showed to, to John and showing him uh, what the coming age would, would hold when, when Jesus is seen opening the fifth seal in Revelation 6 9. Uh, John says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Okay, so the point is that the Bible um, teaches us that there will be martyrdom, that there will be martyrs. Some Christians will be, uh, will be called to this. This is part of the, the plan, uh, and it has a, it has a purpose. Of course, it has, it's not just an accident, an unfortunate consequence of preaching the gospel. But it actually serves an important purpose. And that's why, even though God could stop it, he allows it. And that's one of the things that we see in the martyrdom of, of Stephen here. As, as Stephen is, a, is being stoned, the heavens are, are, are parted. He, he sees into heaven. He sees the glory of God. He sees Jesus, the Son of Man, standing at the, at the right hand of God. And this is Jesus, the the risen Christ, Jesus the reigning Christ, into whose hand has been given all authority and power. Jesus could stop this, but he doesn't. He allows it to happen because there's a need for it. And that's what we really want to to get at today, uh, particularly with respect to the the mission of the church. Uh, Why are there martyrs? Uh, what What is the calling of the martyr? What is the his service unto the church, uh, for which the church ought to be uh, truly grateful. Um, in answer to that question, as we look at the, the martyrdom of Stephen here, I would say uh, two things. The first one is, I think, fairly obvious. And that is the, the witness of Christian martyrs is a particularly compelling Christian witness. So the churches and its members were always witnessing to Christ. Uh, we're always saying that we believe in Jesus in various ways. Um, confessing our faith in Christ. Uh, we're doing so before the world and we're, we're preaching the gospel 
of Jesus Christ. And um, we are and can be seen uh, living according to the ways of, of Jesus Christ as well. Okay, So all this is the church's witness. But there are times in which the, the question is asked, and maybe rightfully so, do these Christians really believe what they say? Talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. What, what is this that's going on with these people? Is this just some sort of a game for them? Is this just some sort of a uh, thing that's helpful to them psychologically and deep down they, they really know it? They're just pretending. Or do they, do they really believe this? Sometimes the world asks that question and needs an answer. And sometimes the church asks that question and needs an answer. And there's no more compelling answer to that question uh, than the witness of a martyr. See a man uh, willing to give his life and actually gives his life for his testimony to Christ. And there can be little, whatever else you say about the man, there can be little doubt. He believes it. He has to believe it. How else could you possibly explain this? And so this is, I would point out, actually, uh, I would say, not just an important, but an essential element of the witness of the apostles of Jesus Christ. Um, when we, we know that, uh, according to, to church tradition, 11 of the 12 apostles were, were martyred. That is, in, in preaching the gospel, it actually cost them their lives, and, and they laid down their lives. So there's lots of ways in which you can, you can get out of that, right? Um, when you see it coming. Um, but 11 of the 12, the only exception apparently being um, John, who lived to an old age, um, seal their testimony uh, by their martyrdom. And so when you look at the apostles of, of Jesus Christ, Jesus has, has died. Um, everybody knows that. He's died on the cross. Not long after, these men go forth um, unto the world proclaiming that Jesus is not dead, that he is he's risen from uh, the grave. People tell them to stop saying this, they won't stop saying it, they continue to press on, trying to reach as many people as they can, and they'll go so far, 11 out of the 12, to actually die, rather than stop preaching the gospel, rather than, than stop telling people that, that their Lord Jesus is the Son of God and that He's risen from, from the dead. And you might ask the question, like, what's up with these guys? What were they, uh, what was in this for them, right? There's, a, there's all kinds of cynical questions that you could ask about the apostles. But when you, when you learn that 11 of the 12 sealed their testimony with their blood, you have to, to draw the conclusion, they believed it. Why did they believe it? Why were they so convinced of the resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, and the importance of that to the world that they were willing to die for their testimony. That's a really uh, important fact concerning the witness of the apostles to which our Christian apologists often appeal uh, in defending uh, the, uh, the testimony of the church concerning uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there was only one standing. Uh, the leaven martyred. Only John was left. And this is what John said in his first epistle, 1 John 1, 1 through 3. He says, That which was from the beginning... Speaking of, of Jesus the Son, the Word. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the Word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. 
And that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. Why should we believe John and the apostles? Uh, the fact of their, their martyrdom makes their witness especially compelling. And the same would be true of, of all of our martyrs throughout the history of the church. Uh, this is not to say that all professing believers are sincere, but clearly some of them are. Clearly some of them truly believe this. And we ask the question, why do they believe this? Why do they believe this? Why do they think this is so important to the world? And sometimes we need that kind of uh, witness because the world can be cynical and talk is cheap and we all understand that. So that's an important part of uh, the, the need which our martyrs uh, supply. God gives martyrs to answer that need. A compelling witness in times when we need that. But there's something else uh, here and I think um, Stephen's martyrdom particularly brings this to light. Uh, so secondly, the, the, wishing of our, the witness of our Christian martyrs is not only a, a compelling witness to Christ, uh, it's a witness that brings clarity uh, in, in times in which perhaps clarity is, is lacking. And so here's, here's what I mean by that. So we, we understand that in this world, Spiritually speaking, there are two kingdoms. Uh, there's the kingdom of darkness, and there's the kingdom of light, which is the kingdom of Christ. And that is all. Just two kingdoms. And, and those two kingdoms are diametrically opposed. They are as different as dark is from light. Um, so the one is the kingdom of Satan. Uh, the one is a kingdom of, of lies, a kingdom of blasphemy, a kingdom of wickedness. It's very core. And that's all it is, is darkness. Um, the other kingdom is a, is a kingdom of light, is a kingdom of, of truth, it's a kingdom of, of true piety, um, fear of the Lord, and it's a kingdom of, of righteousness. And, uh, and so um, if we, in times when, when, when we can see clearly that the difference between the two should be perfectly clear. Um, but we know that it's not always so in the world. That there are, are times in which we, we have these two categories, we have these two concepts, and we look out at the world, and we look at the church as well. And we go, I'm not really sure who's who here. Right? So we look at the world, for example, and, and, and what we may see at a particular time is that people, unbelievers, are, they seem pretty decent. Um, they seem like they're pretty reasonable, and, um, and even at times pretty humane. Well, who are they? What side are they on? Uh, and likewise, then at the same time, we, we look at the church, and, and sometimes we see scandal, uh, and we see uh, blasphemy in the church, we see fanaticism, we see um, Christians not treating each other very, very well, right? So, well, who are these people? And where do they fall in this? And so um, it can all become very confused about... Um, where's the kingdom of darkness and where's the kingdom of light? And, and the reason for this, according to the Bible, is that this is actually the strategy of the kingdom of darkness. The confusion that exists, the inability to distinguish between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness in this world is intentional. It's, it's something which the kingdom of darkness is always working to promote. And there's two sides to that. Um, on, the, on the one hand, uh, we're told by the Apostle Paul... Um, that uh, the kingdom of darkness and Satan as its king masquerades as kingdom and angels of light. So the kingdom of darkness does not 
want to be known as that which it actually is, but wants to, to clothe itself in the clothing of, of light, of, of righteousness, decency, of reasonableness, of humanitarianism, so forth, uh, and, and so on. So this is, is part of the stratum of the kingdom uh, of darkness, because the, the kingdom of darkness thrives on deception. Right? So it's like a crooked salesman right? who's dishonest, thoroughly dishonest, and all he wants is your money and he doesn't really care what happens to you. Well, he's not going to openly declare himself as a crooked salesman, right? But he's rather going to, to come to you and, uh, and not only uh, try to, to, to impress upon you just how honest and trustworthy he is, but even uh, persuade you that he's your friend. So that is, the, the Bible tells us, the strategy of the kingdom of darkness. It masquerades uh, as a kingdom, even the kingdom of light. And then on the other hand, what the kingdom of darkness does is that it then infiltrates the church. It actually finds ways to get into the church and corrupts the visible kingdom of light. So Jesus taught in the parable of the um, the, the wheat and the tares, right? um, that the, the kingdom of heaven uh, is like this field, uh, wheat, and these are the sons of the kingdom, and the enemy comes in and sows tares amongst the wheat. And when the wheat and the tares are coming up, you can't tell the difference between them. Right? So there's always false brethren, false teachers, false doctrine coming in, confusing things. Uh, creating problems, and even within uh, ourselves, uh, brothers and sisters, there are two elements that are at war, right? Um, flesh and, and the spirit. One is of the, the kingdom of light, and, and one sadly is not. And so, um, so this is part of the confusion as well. So we've got the, the kingdom of darkness out there masquerading as the kingdom of light, sometimes pulling that off uh, quite impressively. Uh, and then inside the church, we have the kingdom of light, corrupted by the kingdom of darkness and that creates a great deal of confusion and so there may be times in which something needs to happen to uh to bring clarity to the situation to make it so that both we in the church and the world outside can see more clearly the the distinction that's actually there between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness and and see at least in part the, the lines drawn uh between the two sides and that's uh, I would say, uh, what our martyrs are called um, to do. So think about the situation here um, in Acts chapter 7 and, and Stephen. If you were to, the beginning of this chapter, if you were to walk into the court of Sanhedrin, uh, everything seems you know, pretty ordered uh, in that court. Uh, so on, you would see the, the members of the Sanhedrin, these, these old uh, stately gentlemen, these... Uh, uh, religious authorities, uh, grave and, and solemn and concerned, and then there were other witnesses and people there, and they were expressing their concern, and they had the, the books of Moses before them, right? Uh, and they were just trying to get to the bottom of things, right, to try to protect the nation and so forth. And then on the other hand, you have this fellow Stephen, we don't know who he is. Um, he, he could just be any guy, he's been out saying things that sound crazy and upsetting people and accusations are brought against him that some of the things that he's saying are blasphemous and contrary to what Moses taught. So if you had just walked into um, the room, like this ordered courtroom at that moment, you would have had a hard time discerning clearly between 
the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness in the room. Where, where did the Sanhedrin fall? Where did these people fall? Where does Stephen fall? Who's who? Um, if, if behind the, the appearance of things there are these, these two kingdoms. Well, as, as Stephen comes to the end of his, his address and he, part of his, his, his ministry as a, as a martyr is, is his bold witness. And so he, he, he brings boldly his, this, this witness to, to Christ and he speaks to the truth. Uh, and the Sanhedrin and the people here them, themselves being pointed out in the Holy Scripture as those who are resisting the Holy Spirit, what happens? Chaos. Right? Stephen's bold witness uh, causes this ordered courtroom to just degenerate into a, a state of chaos. People are screaming. Right? People are putting their hands over their ears. They're rushing at Stephen. They're dragging him violently. Outside, like these are not the, the normal orderly proceedings of a of a court. This is a lynching, and they're dragging Stephen outside, and they're tearing off their clothes, right? And they're picking up stones, and they're pelting this this man to to death. And you're, you're kind of like, what just happened? Right? Well, it's not as if some uh, dark spirit, alien to the Sanhedrin and the people, suddenly swept into the room and took over. But what you're seeing was actually what was there all along. Right? The kingdom of darkness, its true colors, right? suddenly, uh, for some reason, is, is not able to restrain itself. And, and in doing so, the mask comes off um, and we see what it's all about. What we get is this, this passion of rage uh, takes over this, this room, the Sanhedrin, and these, these people. They're no longer... Reasonable, are they? Um, they're no longer interested in justice. They just want blood. They just want this man dead, and they're prepared to kill him themselves, right? So there's, there's murder in this, as this, this very real lynching is taking place in our world. And, and suddenly, you know, if you'd have been in that scene, uh, you would have seen the Sanhedrin and these people quite differently. Hmm, decent? Reasonable, humane, not as much as they seemed. And that's clarity. And the order, and the order that the, that the kingdom of darkness likes and establishes, the veneer, things are confusing. The martyr enters in, creates chaos, and spiritually clarity manifests itself. And then the other side of this is Stephen. How different is Stephen? He's just a guy accused of blasphemy. He's just a guy giving a lesson about the Old Testament scriptures. And then suddenly chaos breaks out. Kingdom of darkness manifests itself. I think unwittingly. Like it, it would like to maintain the, the veneer, but just Stephen gets under its skin. Right? Uh, and it exposes itself. And meanwhile, Stephen is just transformed into like an angel, isn't he? He's this, Stephen is all peace in the midst of this. Stephen the martyr. And, and Stephen is a man who is truly enlightened as they're dragging him outside and all this murderous chaos and riot is going on around him. Stephen is standing in the middle of it and he's saying, I see the glory of God. And I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And as the, 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 the stones come down upon his, his head, 
Stephen is not calling down curses upon his enemies. He's saying, Lord, forgive them this sin and receive my spirit. And he fell asleep, that is, he died. So that's the, that's the witness of Stephen as a martyr in the actual martyrdom, which is distinct from his witness inside the ordered court of the Sanhedrin. The chaos breaks out. The kingdom of darkness manifests itself. Stones start flying. And that's when Stephen really shines. And what you're seeing is, is now that which we, we couldn't distinguish clearly between is getting clearer and clearer and clearer in the contrast between the Sanhedrin and the people on the one hand and Stephen representing the church on the other hand. What, what is happening here? We might say, well, Stephen is in his martyrdom bearing witness to Christ. And that would certainly be true. He's bearing witness to Christ. But if you look again, we might also say, Christ is bearing witness to himself through his martyr Stephen. One of the things that um, the commentators frequently pick up on this is how much Stephen in his death looks like Jesus in his death. And I want to show you that so that that you don't miss it. So first there is uh, Stephen's testimony in verse 56. If we go back to to the Gospels, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. Um, there we see Jesus himself um, before the Sanhedrin and giving his testimony concerning himself. It says in Mark 14, 61, the high priest asked him, that is Jesus, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And now here's Stephen. Stephen is before the same Sanhedrin. And this is his testimony. Verse 56. He being full of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus had sent to him from heaven, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So it's the same witness, isn't it? What Jesus bore witness to in his death Stephen now bears witness to in his death, and it's almost the same witness. Even more impressively, compare Jesus' words and actions on the cross and Stephen's words and actions as he was being stoned. And you probably picked on this, picked up on this as I read. So we go back to Luke 23, the crucifixion of Jesus at Calvary. We read there, Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. So remember that? Jesus prayed unto the Father to forgive them and who were killing him while they were killing him. And then it says, And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now we get Stephen, and he's dying, a Christian martyr. It says in verse 59, And they they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Okay. So you put that all together and what you get is in through martyrdom and, the, and the, the, the ugly chaos of martyrdom, clarity happens. 
between the two kingdoms. The kingdom of darkness manifests its true colors. The mask comes off. And we see who and, and really what these people are and what they represent. Uh, and then on the other hand, it's not just the, the kingdom of light that manifests itself um, in, the, in the martyr and his patience in martyrdom. But it's actually the king. The king himself actually manifests himself uh, through this, his martyr. It's like suddenly they're killing Jesus again. And we're hearing his words again. And we're seeing who Jesus is again every time. Again and again and again. Every time a martyr dies. So it's a compelling witness, the witness of our martyrs. But it is also a clarifying witness. And sometimes we need that. What we're supposed to be doing now, brothers and sisters, is preparing ourselves for the engagement uh, in the church's mission. And so as we've seen, there'll be lots of different callings and lots of different ministries. Some of us will be called to preach. Others will be called to uh, support our preachers. Some will be involved in church planting and oversight of our churches. Some will be involved in charity to the poor, the administration of those gifts. Some will be involved in apologetics, etc., etc. And some will die. That's part of our growing understanding of the mission of the church. As we're reading through the book of Acts and we come to Stephen. Some will die. That will be their calling. That will be their service. That will be their ministry. And there's a good reason for that. Because there are times and there are places when, uh, when we need a compelling witness like that. Both for the sake of the church and also for the sake of the world. And we also need clarity. Because it's not clear at all to anybody. Um, just where the line between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness is. And that's where our, our, our martyrs come in. They are, um, by their, their witness, um, able through uh, the, the, the powerful working of the Holy Spirit um, in their lives and in their deaths, they are able to, to bear that witness and bear that witness, unmask Satan. So the, the veneer of reasonableness, decency, just comes off and see what's really there. And also, uh, witnesses born unto Christ and those who truly believe in Christ, which can result in a purging of the church. Right? So remember in the parable, the sower, um, one of the seed falls upon the stony ground, has no root in itself at first. It receives the gospel with joy. Then something happens and it dries up and goes away. And what's that? The sun comes out and there's persecution. Right? So persecution, martyrdom, can actually purge the church of those who aren't serious. But those aren't true believers. And we may look at, at the church in our own time and say, you know, this would be a good thing. This would be a good thing to have that kind of clarity right now. Uh, between the kingdom of light, between the kingdom of darkness in the world, between the true believers and the pretenders in the church. And so maybe this would be a time um, in which some of us need to die. And so that's why uh, the Bible is... Always, including now, preparing us for martyrdom. It's teaching on the subject all the time. Um, teaching on persecution, including martyrdom. We get it here with Stephen. Right? You're being taught about martyrdom uh, in a passage like this. And if you go through the letters of the apostles, it, it's always talking about persecution. It's always talking about martyrdom. And that's not just for the first century church. That's for the church throughout the present age. 
Um, we're being shown in these passages that martyrdom is, is not optional. It's essential. Um, it's essential, and it's essential because it's necessary. There's a certain need um, which it specifically speaks to and by which God provides the answer that both the church and the world need. And for that reason, and I'll close with this, um, as the church, we should consider uh, the sacrifice and the service of our mar- martyrs an especially honorable calling. Um, that is, we should remember them. It's in the Bible, right? Stephen's witness, so that we don't forget. So that we don't forget his witness. So we don't forget how compelling it was. So we don't forget what clarity it brought. So we don't forget that, that this man, though it cost him his life, did a great service to the church in his time, as does every martyr after him. So we remember these martyrs, and we remember their, their legacy, and we do not forget them. That's part of the way uh, in which we can support what the Bible is trying to do. I think of this sort of like the, um, in the Civil War. In the battles of the, the Civil War, you know, the, the soldiers, the blue and the gray, that they would, they would come to the battlefield and they would be getting ready to enter onto the battlefield and to engage in this, in this clash of, of arms, horrible battle. Um, and on each side, uh, a man, a soldier, would be chosen to be the flag bearer. Well, you say, Whew, I get to be the flag bearer. Well, it's not a great, it's not a thing to relish in and of itself, right? Because one, it takes two hands to bear that flag, which means no gun. Right? And then secondly, you don't stand at the back of the line and wave the flag because nobody can see you. But you have to go to the front and charge into the battle waving that flag to rouse your brethren to the fight. And you know you're going to die. But you take it up because you believe in the cause and you consider it an honorable calling. And you take up your flag and you're going to die. And that's what martyrs do. And when that guy gets mowed down and the flag falls down, we don't say, well, that's the end of the flag bearer, right? But another picks it up. He drops his gun, he picks it up, and he prepares to die. And that's the way we think of our martyrs. Uh, this is not, uh, I, I mean, naturally the, the concept of martyrdom on the face of it is abhorrent. And nobody wants this for themselves, for their children. But if we look at it again, as the Bible teaches us to look at it in Stephen's martyrdom and many other places, we say, that's a high calling. That's a noble debt. That's a great service to the church and, and unto Christ. Uh, Lord God, we pray. Um, continue to bless the church with those um, who, who you call and you equip to to martyrdom. How will they stand the pressures of that moment? Jesus will reveal himself unto them. Much is made of the fact um, that Jesus here is not sitting at the right hand of the Father uh, when he shows himself to Stephen by standing. He's standing. And that's the secret to the martyr's strength. If you're called to this, the Lord will be with you. The Lord will be with you. I pray God's blessing upon these special servants of the church. Shall we pray? And now, Lord God, as we seek your, your blessing upon the church in the world and, uh, and our ministries and the success of our mission, we thank you, Lord, for the calling and the service of your martyrs. And pray, Lord God, that, uh, that you would bless the church with that witness when it needs it. 
and that you would give those, your servants, strength to be able to witness unto death, to shed their blood for the sake of the word, and in doing so, to bless the church and to bless the world with a, a truly compelling witness to the faith of sincere believers, uh, and also, Lord God, to bring clarity where otherwise uh, there is too much confusion. We thank you, Lord God, for the wisdom of your ways and know that you do all things well. Help us to trust in you and this in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.